Is this Michael Francisi? It sure is. Thanks for calling in, my friend. You're very welcome. Husband, father, motivational speaker, mobster, man of God, author. That's one hell of a ride, my man. Well, I guess it all applies, huh, Mike? It does. And now, Mike, most of your interviews are the same questions over and over. Where's Hoffa? Where's this? And all that nonsense. Is it cool if we focus a little on the now? You can't finish your book if you keep reading the same pages over and over. Is that cool? Well, Michael, actually, I'd prefer that because you are right. People seem to, you know, they just want to dwell on the past and ask the, the, the same old questions. So it's it's refreshing to know that you choose a different direction. Great. Well, I tried to because your personal story of how you found your faith in God, especially coming from, you know, quote unquote, the life. How would you find that light and the faith? Well, you know, Mike, I, I like to believe that God found me, that he had his design on me like he does with many others early on. And it's just a question of. You know, when he gets your attention and when the light bulb goes off. And, and for me, I, I guess I had to hit the, you know, my bottom, my rock bottom before I really realized it. But, you know, it was uh, it was a young woman, a 20 year old girl that's now my wife for 35 years that actually really introduced me to uh, to Christ. And that started there. But it really took hold when I was in lockdown in, in federal prison for almost three years. And that's when I really developed my faith. And obviously that was your rock bottom, correct? Yeah, I would say it was. That was the bottom. Certainly bottom. And when you're speaking, Mike, is there a message you focus on? Is it forgiveness? Is it faith? Is it spirituality? What do you focus on mostly? Well, you know, it's definitely forgiveness. It's definitely encouragement. Noticed, you know, in the past 20 some odd years that I've been speaking around the world that people need to be encouraged. You know, people need hope. They need to understand that. You know, our faith really dictates that no matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you've been, no matter how far away from God's grace you've been, that he's always there to, uh, you know, to stretch out his arms and take you in. If you you just, for you know, you confess your sins, you accept Christ as your Savior, you really mean it. And I always stress this. I tell people, look, I pulled a lot of scams in my life when I was in that life, but you can't pull a scam on God. Those <laughs> are hearts. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I like to say it that way. People get it. And uh, but if you truly ask for forgiveness and you invite Jesus into your heart and you start to develop this relationship with Jesus. And Mike, I stress that all the time. You know, people say, wow, have you changed? And I say, I didn't change. OK, change is temporary in people. I have been transformed through Jesus Christ because Jesus does the work. When you have that relationship with him, he 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 transforms you from the inside out. So things that were difficult before become a little bit easier. And as life goes on and the closer you get to the Lord, the easier things become. And that's how I found it. Were you always God-fearing or religious, or did you gain that when you met the girl and later on? Like, was it always in the back of your mind, like, I shouldn't be doing these things, but— you know, I, I think I always had a conscience. You know, I, I will say that, uh, you know, when I was in that life, I did things that made me uncomfortable. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't comfortable or happy with, but I did them anyway. I mean, I, I was a sinner. There's no question about it. But I, I believe I had a conscience. But, you know, I grew up a Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. Okay. I was an altar boy the whole bit. You know, but for me, Catholicism was more like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this life is about a relationship with Jesus. And I always say I'm not knocking Catholics. You know, I have many friends uh, that are Catholics. It's just how it, it affected me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I believed in God. Um, I didn't really have a fear of hell or anything like that at that point in time. Um, you know, it's... It, 
You know, I say this too. Um, when I spent almost three years in solitary, I developed a very healthy fear of hell. I developed a fear, a healthy fear of things that were no good for me, like sin. And I stress that to people all the time. There's nothing wrong with developing a healthy fear of things that are bad for you. And, you know, I stress this too. You know, the Bible is very clear. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news is none of us have to go to hell. <laughs> we all have an opportunity to be with the Lord. So that's what's important. <clears throat> I know you were some athlete growing up. Are you, uh, you're a big baseball guy. You still a fan? Uh, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I hate to turn some of your people off. No, Mike, I was, uh, I was nervous. You switched teams when you moved out to the West coast. That's what I thought you did. Oh no, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. Uh, that'll never change. Never change. Who was your guy growing up, Mike? Well, you know, when I was a kid, <laughs> Mickey Mantle was my idol. Of I course. Mean, that's what I, I wanted. I wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. That was my dream. What is it? I asked my father this a million times. Diehard Yankee fan, and he thought Mickey Mantle can walk on water. He had a crappy dad. He's like, Mickey Mantle was my life. What was it about the Mick that everyone just loved so much? You know, I think his personality was great. I mean, he was just such a superstar. I think, you know, it did it for me a few times. My dad took me to Yankee Stadium, mm -hmm. and I saw him just, you know, do his heroics. And uh, I just loved the guy. I mean, uh, I don't know. He he was the Yankee. I mean, I liked all the Yankees, but Mick, he just stood out. I mean, you have to say that. He stood out. And, and, you know, he was so relatable back when there wasn't social media. He was just a guy who drank, who just hung out. You know, listen, he, he had the opportunity to meet a lot of women, and he took advantage of that. He was like a normal guy that was just this icon of a baseball player. That's, people just loved him. Yeah, he was a good boy, you know. Just had incredible skills and uh, just himself. He didn't play the game hard, and he played the game of life hard, you know. And I, I guess we, we just loved it. You're out in California now, right? I am, yeah. What food do you miss the most? You're a Brooklyn, New York guy. What food in the Big Apple or restaurant do you just miss the most? Well, you know, I got to tell you this, Mike, you know, I, I hear from people so many times, you know, <laughs> New Yorkers that, hey, you know, you can't beat the feed, food in New York. And I'll tell you this, when I first came out to California in the, in the late 70s, that was true. I mean, you couldn't find a good Italian restaurant here. I used to ask, <laughs> I mean, I, I had met up with Travolta and Eric Estrada and they would give me the name of a restaurant and it was just horrible. I found out that, you know, celebrities don't know good food. That's for sure. <laughs> But, you know, that was then. But now, you know, food, good food is caught up all around the country, all around the world. And I think the reason for that is because of all these celebrity chefs that, you know, have gone online and have television shows. Restaurants have to compete. They got to serve good food because people know good food. So, you know, we eat good wherever we go. But you know what? The thing is, in New York, there's just more good restaurants. I mean, you know, it's hard to find a bad one in, in, in the right places. So, but I miss a lot of the, the home-style cooking that I got in restaurants in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Like in my neighborhood, there was a place called Crescis. My cousins actually owned it, an Italian restaurant. Another place called Bamonte's, it's still there. Of course, they I work, I work around the corner from Bamonte's. Oh, so you know, you know, I mean, I haven't eaten there in a long time, but, you know, I used to love the place. And I can name a lot of places. I don't want to advertise for everybody. But, <laughs> you know, just the, the home-style cooking was great, you know, and I, I guess I miss that. You going stir crazy yet with what's going on, the lockdown, just sitting in your house? How are you keeping busy? You know, it's funny. I uh, I did a – on BuzzFeed, I did a uh, uh, an interview about, you know, how I spent time in the hole for three years and how I related that to doing quarantine <laughs> in the house. 
I can tell you, this is a walk in the park compared to that. But, you know, it's funny. I'm actually getting things done that I've done before. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not too bad. I mean, you know, I feel bad for those people that don't, you know, have the same environment that I have and those yeah. people that are really suffering, you know, business-wise. I mean, this, this is a tough deal we're going through now. Everyone knows your story, but there are some missing pieces I'm curious about. You were a Hofstra guy. You were going to Hofstra, right? That's correct. Yeah. And what do you want to be like? What was your besides, you know, when you, you know, you the fork in the road. I know your father went away. You decided to go into life. What do you want to be? What was your career aspirations? You know, I mean, I, I was a pre-med student going to be a doctor and I get I, I did want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I wanted it more because my father wanted it for me. My mom wanted it for me. But that's where I was headed. And I was a fairly good student. So I probably would have done OK. But, you know, really, it was it was sports that I was into. And then, um, you know, I found out at some point in time that I had a head for business. And then uh, that started attracting me. Just, you know, I guess entrepreneurship. I, I don't know. Just getting involved in different things. And ultimately, that's where I went. But, um, you know, I, I, I can say I wasn't firmly decided on anything that I was going to do, even, even in college. <clears throat> you just mentioned sports. You're a big sports guy or just baseball? No, I'm a football guy too. I mean, you know, not too much basketball, but mm -hmm. baseball, football. And now I love golf. I mean, I'm totally into it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't, I mean, I would golf every day if I had the opportunity to. It's it's that, that much a part of me now. But uh, yeah, I'm a sports guy. What's your handicap? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't even know. I'm just in, uh, in the eighties, you know, mid eighties, uh, Bit. Oh, that's very respectable. My sons are great athletes. So we golf a lot, but uh, they're all great. Athletes. My whole family, all even the girls, they're all good athletes. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, silly question now again, but how do you go about getting into the life? I know your father was a part of it, but you know your father went away. You're like, listen, I got to take care of the family now. I got to become a man, take care of the family, support them. What'd you do? Did you make a call and be like, hey, dad, make a call for me? Who'd you call and be like, hey, I, I think this is for me? Because I know you didn't, your dad didn't want you in it. No, the way it happened for me, um, you know, I visited my dad in Lemoore Penitentiary. We were in the visiting room. And, you know, I had become close with Joe Colombo at that point. I was on the picket line for the Italian-American Civil Rights League. I was a lot of around, around a lot of my dad's friends. And, you know, a lot of them saying, hey, if you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison because, you know, he got that 50-year prison sentence. So I looked first in school and uh, I was sitting with dad in the visiting room. And I said, dad, I'm not going to school anymore. You were framed in this case. And mm -hmm. if I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And uh, basically at that point in time, he said, well, you, you can do the most good for me if uh, you were part of my life. Mm -hmm. And he proposed me, you know, you just can't go up to anybody's head. <laughs> Somebody has to propose. Yeah, I mean, another yeah. member has to propose you, vouch for you. So in my case, it was my dad. And through whatever prison system he had, he sent word out to uh, to guys on Carroll Street, you know, in our family, the Colombo family. Mm -hmm. And he proposed me for membership. So, you know, that's how it started for me. How long was the recruitment, you know, the minor leagues? So you got called up to the big leagues and became a made man. How long did you, how much time did you have to do? It was about two years. And, you know, the, the interesting thing at that time, Mike, I don't know if you know, but there was an expression that, you know, nationwide, the books were closed mm -hmm. in La Cosa Nostra, meaning that. No new guys were being made only to replace a guy that had died in the family. There. So I, I only, it took me about two years uh, before I was made. And other guys might sometimes have to wait 10, 20 years. Oh yeah. That, that, that restriction was imposed for, from what I was told in the early fifties. So they waited, you know, some guys 20 years before they uh, were inducted into the life. 
but I got in in the 70s when they started to make a lot of guys, uh, you know, and, and, and build up their families. Your father, he gave you tips on it, or did you learn from observing? Is it more learn on the job game, or? Well, you know, both. Look, I mean, my father was the master in that life, and, and he taught me well, and I was a good listener. I always listened. I always wanted advice, and I wanted to learn from the best. And then, of course, you it's on-the-job training. I mean, you got you got to be pretty sharp, and you got to learn. You got to listen. You got to observe. So it's a combination of both. For the first time ever, I'm not a big movie guy, not a big TV guy, but I finally watched Sopranos, and there's a scene where Meadow is searching online, and she sees her father's in the mob on some mob site, and she tells uh, AJ, "How did you find out who your dad was, or when did you know that he was different from like the other dads?" Well, you know, in my case, it was very hard to miss because my dad in the early 60s, when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. had as much publicity back then before we had, you know, social media and Internet as John Gotti had later on in his life. My dad was the media. Oh, yeah. He was the media star back then. So growing up, my dad was always under constant surveillance. surveillance. He was always in the media. We had law enforcement people around us all the time, you know, stories being written about him on the radio, on TV. So, you know, you couldn't miss it. So I knew early on uh, who my dad was. And I know down the road, you you and your dad had some bumps in the road. Sonny, famous, famous guy. He lived to be 103, recently passed. And first, sorry about your loss. And two, did you you. guys, I guess, reconnect or repair that relationship? Because you speak so fondly of him. Oh, we did. You, you know, when I walked away from that life, I knew I'd get a lot of, you know, blowback on it, of course. And, you know, a contract on my life. And, and Persigo was the boss, my boss at that time. And he, he took it very personal when I walked away. You're not allowed to do that. So, I mean, I knew I was going to face some uh, some real struggles and challenges. And, you know, my dad went along with it at the time. But, uh, you know, he had no choice. He didn't have much of a choice in that. But, you know, I knew he loved me. I knew he would never personally hurt me or anything like that. So, you know, I just played it cool for a number of years until things blew over. And then uh, he and I reconnected. And uh, we, we were close ever since for the past, you know, 15, 20 years. And at least I got to spend some time with him, um, you know, when uh, when he got out of prison in 2017. Look, it, it was never the same, the relationship, uh, for obvious reasons, but I love my dad. He loved me, and, you know, at least when he passed, uh, we, we both knew that, so. And because you're a man of, you know, you're a man of God, do you ever look like he lived to 103 years old, and I got to rekindle my relationship? Does it? Do you feel like your faith, like, kept you around long enough to forgiveness? He, like, who would have ever thought he would have got out of prison, you know, like, and lived that long? I know, you know, he was, uh, he was certainly a unique guy. He had a strong will to live, very, very strong. And, uh, you know, his passing was tough because, you know, it had a major impact on my life from the time I was a child. So we had our ups and downs, but I always loved him. And I know that I was special in his eyes, you know, so, you know, to live to 103 under the conditions that he had to live in, you know, I always say this, Mike, the last 50 years of his life, nobody really would have wanted to have. I mean, he spent 40 years in prison. Mm-hmm. He lost, uh, you know, my sister died of overdose of drugs. My brother uh, was a drug addict, actually turned against my father. You know, my mom dies. I mean, he lost a lot of our family while he was away. So to, to be under the pressure and strain that he was under, 
and lived to 103, he had a very strong will. He was a very strong guy, no doubt about it. You know, and I, I deal with addiction in my family. Imagine being, you know, the head of the family inside jail, not you feeling you're helpless anyway when people are fighting drugs. Now you're in jail even more helpless. Imagine what he was going through in there. I know. Listen, it was it was tough, but uh you know, and it's funny, I, I I don't know. My I mean he died, you know, in the midst of this coronavirus deal and he died so suddenly. I, I have a feeling that uh, he, he might have had that virus. We don't really know it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's a theory, just the way things went down. But I was just, you know, I said that's that's the thing that finally got him. And, uh, you know, just tough. I mean, really tough. And, and how long ago was that, Mike? It was, it was recently. It was this month, right? No, it was February, oh. February 24th. Oof. Again, Mike, sorry. My condolences. And I mean that, too. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's funny, Mike, because I have a ton of athletes on my show. You know, I had a few astronauts, and I hate to pigeonhole them. And that's why I wanted to make sure the beginning of the podcast wasn't like, hey, mob, 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 because I have these athletes on, and I always talk about their one famous play, their one game, and, and that's not fair. But when I told a few people you were coming on, everyone said the same thing. They go, oh, my God, his gas scheme. That was the most amazing thing in the history of the mob. Can you just tell me exactly what the gas operation was and how you got involved in it? Because it is... I hate to say this, fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly was the the highlight of my career in that life, I would say. <laughs> but, you know, the, the way it happened, you know, Mike, it, everybody has this theory about the mob that, you know, we sit down in our social clubs and we plan on the next business that we're going to infiltrate and so on and so forth. Well, normally it doesn't happen like that. You know, normally somebody that has a business that, you know, wants to defraud in some way or wants to make some money, they come to us. They come to us because they figure, hey, you know, we have the money, we can protect them, uh, you know, they got strength around them. And that's how it happened here. There was a guy out in Long Island who had a small gas operation and uh, a couple of guys from another were extorting him. So I was kind of the guy on Loki and he ran to me for help. And long story short, he said, you know, I kept rejecting him. I said, look, if these other guys are with you. They got there first. You know, let them have fun. Uh, but he kept coming back. He was persistent. And finally, he said to me, look, you know, I got a germ of an idea with your help. I think we can really do something. I said, why? And he told me that, you know, he wanted to defraud the government at a tax on every gallon of gasoline. Well, at that point, I hated the government. So I said, hey, anything I can do to take money from the government, I'm, I'm willing to listen to. <laughs> so he had a germ of an idea, you know, and, and I got rid of the guys who were, were bothering him. I mean, you know, made them go away. And we go into business together and we both uh, come up with this scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And basically, you know, we had a, a daisy chain of companies. I had 18 companies um, that were licensed uh, to collect tax on every gallon of gasoline. They were wholesale operations. I had a political connection to get the licenses because they weren't easy to get. They were all Panamanian companies, and all we needed the company for was to obtain a license and open a bank account. And, you know, at the, I mean, it was a lot of accounts, a lot of procedures. I'm, I'm really simplifying it, but mm-hmm. it was pretty complicated to keep the government off our back for almost a year. So we were collecting taxes for almost a year on each one of these licenses, one after the other. And uh, I did it for about eight years. I brought the Russian mob into it. And at the height of my operation, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month and taking down 20, 30, 40 cents a gallon, whatever deal we made at that time. So, you know, at one point in time, we're bringing in five, six, seven, eight million dollars a week. And uh, it was a lot of money. And, 
you know, <laughs> with a lot of money comes a lot of recognition and so on and so forth. So, you know, they made me a captain as a result of that. And, uh, you know, I had my own jet plane. I had a helicopter, I had a house in California, a house in New York, a house in, in Florida. And uh, I had 300 guys under me. So, I mean, I was rolling pretty good at that time. You mentioned the helicopter, the houses. How about dumbest purchase you made with all that money? Mike, you got millions and millions of coming in each week, blowing your mind. Dumbest purchase that you made. You know, the dumbest thing I did, I'm going to be honest with you. Okay. We would party. We would party a lot at night. I, I think about it now. I mean, I, you know, part of that life was you're in a club just about every night, five, six nights a week. And I had a big crew and we used to party and I would always pick up the tab. So I was spending thousands of dollars a night, you know, just being the life of the party. When I look back, I said, look at all the money I spent for all of those years. I wish I had it now. I mean, thousands, Mike. I'm not kidding. So I think of all the dumb things that I did, that was probably the dumbest when I look back now. But you know what? Uh, the plane was, was very useful. I enjoyed it. The helicopter was great. I mean, I used to evade the police on the helicopter. They could never follow me when they were surveilling me. It was great. I, I loved to drive them crazy back then. But, uh, you know, it, look, it was a good time. I mean, with all the pressure I had, because I don't know if you know, but I've been arrested 17, 18 times. I was indicted seven times. I had two federal racketeering cases. So I always had the law on top of me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there were good times, too. You deal with it. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of good times that I think back on. 1986, the Mets win the World Series. That's horrible. But then you see your name in the Fortune 500. You as this young multimillionaire, what went through your head? And did you know you were going to be in the magazine prior? I had no idea. Actually, I was in prison in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, in the federal prison there. And a lieutenant called me into his office. I'll never forget. He was this, he was this guy, like, uh, right out of Smokey in the right? Okay. You know, big guy. He was a lieutenant. Yeah, the lieutenant. And he calls me in and he shows me the ma magazine article. Oh. And I'll never forget, you know, Mike, he says to me, he says, you mafia guys are not running my prison. And I said, what are you talking about? And he shows me the article. And uh, Anyway, he locked me down because the, uh, the guy that wrote the article was all over television. You know, the news talking about it. And they featured six guys in the article. And I was one of the six. You know, I was the youngest guy on the list. I was fine behind Gotti at that time. So they made a big deal out of it. They locked me down for about two weeks until everything quieted down with the article. But no, I, I was shocked. I had no idea that that was coming out. And when you're in prison, those things don't do you any good. Believe me. Dumbest, dumb question. Do you still have a copy of that magazine? A lot of I remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, because a lot of people deny that stuff. When your name's in the newspaper for the first time, you still have a copy of that? Oh, I have a copy. I'll tell you why, Mike. I'll tell you how God works. No, no, no. Listen, listen to this. I'll tell you how God works. Mm -hmm. That that uh, at that time that caused me nothing but headaches because, like I said, they locked me down in prison, and every inmate that heard the story was coming to me with a deal. You know, I, because they all figured, you know, a big shot, and they'll come to me with a deal, and, and none of them made sense, and I didn't listen to any of it. But I I kept getting bothered when they put me out in the yard. But aside from that, today, I don't know if you know this, like 34 years later, at least 48 of those men are dead, wow. at least 48, maybe 49. So when I bring that out, when I'm speaking and I'm saying, you think God didn't do me a favor? 
I said, 48 out of 50 dead. And here's number number 50 here to talk to you today to show you, okay, that when God's got a plan and a purpose for you, nothing's going to stand in the way. Because look, when I walked out of prison in 95, Mike, everybody predicted my death. Everybody. Because word was on the street, you know, I mean, and, you know, look, I didn't know how it was going to work out. I mean, I never, I never sell my former associates short. These guys are very smart and very capable. So I didn't know, you know, I crystal ball. I didn't say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to live to <laughs> to 69. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I, I did what I had to do to protect myself. But, uh, you know, when you, you know, when you see the, the work that God has done in my life, it's got to make people say, hey, there must be something to this. When did you go in, Mike? When I went into prison? Yeah, that last stint. When you got out in 95, when did you go in? I went in in 85. Oh, my God. So that's a huge chunk of your life. I don't want to say any good came out, Mike. You come out in 95. Yankees win the World Series in 96. I'm not saying that's a coincidence, but come on. (laughs) Well, I had nothing to do with that. I was just a fan. (laughs) Mike, you you, you seem calm now, serene. You have a sense of humor. Are, Are you happy? Are you at peace right now? You seem so happy now. Mike, I'll tell you, you know, for me, every day is a bonus. I mean, I'm, I'm extremely thankful where I, I got a, a wife of 35 years. I got seven beautiful kids. I mean, I have grandkids, I have a ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, I have nothing to complain about, and uh, I'm just very thankful. You know, uh, God has been extremely good to me. You know, I deserved a lot less, and uh, it should have been a lot worse for me. But for whatever reason, uh, it's not, and I'm very thankful for it. And I really mean that. And people say that, and I assume when they say it, they mean it, but I really mean it. I mean, I, I have I have nothing to complain for. And look, I've had many challenges and struggles over the years. I mean, it, it hasn't been easy. You know, you don't go through what I went through and then everything's, a, you know, a bowl of cherries. Not like that at all. But, you know, look, God has had my back. I believe that with all my heart. And, uh, you know, everything's been good. I know this is, and the reason I wanted to start the podcast with speaking about God and your faith is so strong because when you got made, I read, I think I read somewhere or watched something that six people got made with you that night and you're the, how many years later and you're the only one still here and there's a reason for that and you were involved in the same stuff as that and you're the only one still here, man. You know the reason for that, um, Mike, you know, y- your faith. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, a lot of a lot of people were killed in the early 90s, a lot of got jail for life and, you know, um, you know, you, I always say this. If you're a part of that life, you die of old age and you die free, mm-hmm. you've really accomplished something. You've really accomplished something. So, you know, and, and I believe that and and the stats certainly bear me out. I mean, just everybody I know is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. Everybody. And is that why you're not really as worried as, oh, someone's going to come get me right now? Is that why everyone from your age is kind of older now, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't worry about that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't know in anybody's face. and I don't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe in God, but God doesn't tell you to be stupid. You know, <laughs> you gotta use so I probably wouldn't last 48 hours, but, you know, I'm not going to do that. And uh, look, I, I'm not looking to hurt anybody. I don't uh, I'm not putting people in prison. And I, I never was mad at anybody. I didn't leave the life for that reason. I wouldn't want revenge on anyone. So it wasn't that. I mean, I, I left there for what I believe is the right reasons. And I think the fact that I'm here is, is, uh, is testament to that. So, but, you know, look, like anything else, you know, I could be sitting signing books at a church and somebody could take a shot at me. You just never know. But anybody that's high profile, mm-hmm. 
has those things to be concerned about it. So I worry about it, but you know, I, I'm also fairly cautious when I need to be. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. You and I are at a bar here in New York or out in California. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you called or texted them, they would answer or get right back to you? Uh, coolest person. Let me see. Yep. How about Mike, Mike Tyson? Yeah. And you know what? That's a great answer. Cause that's what I knew who you are. And then I watched you on the hot, or I listened to the podcast with him. That was awesome. And now you being a sports guy, a Brooklyn guy, how cool is that meeting Iron Mike? You know what? I, I loved, I, I, I love meeting him again. And I enjoy being with him. You know why? Because he's so honest. <laughs> I mean, he has no filter. He really, he has no filter. What's in his head is on his tongue and, and out. But he's so honest, and I love that about him. I really do. I mean, I, I've really gotten to like him, and, and boy, I'm rooting for him. I really hope that, you know, life treats him well for the rest of his life. I really mean that. Yeah, and, and he stays away from the drugs and stuff. You you want to know what I loved about that interview? And you can tell it with some people. Some people do it as a job. Some people do it very robotic. Hi, Michael, where did you grow up? He was so honest, and he was laughing and getting giddy, asking about, oh, did you know Gotti? Did you? He was like a kid fanboying out, and it was so genuine and raw. That's what I loved about that uh, that episode. Yeah, he, he was great. You know, he's he's a neighbor of mine. He lives out in Newport Beach, and mm -hmm. he has another place in Vegas. And I'm back and forth, so, you know, he's uh, he's just a good guy, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to know him now. You're an author now, so what book are you currently reading? You know, um, I'm actually not, I'm not reading a book right now and I'm doing a lot of work, believe it or not. But, you know, I read my Bible every day, just a little bit mm -hmm. and, um, you know, not reading any books. My wife is a reader. She's one book after another. She reads and reads and reads me. If I read, read on an airplane, but uh -huh. I, I tend to read, I tend to read a lot of faith-based books because I'm very into apologetics Okay. and I love, you know, I guess because of the evidence part of my life that I've been on trial so many times, <laughs> and, you know, you know, I, I guess it, uh, it's fascinating to me and the more evidence that I, I always uh, research and find in support of my faith, uh, the more I enjoy it. Best mob movie of all time. All right, best mob movie. Now this is this is going to be not going to believe this, but here it is. I mean, obviously, I think the best mob movie of all time was really The Godfather. Okay. I mean, when you when you take it for in its entirety, it was The Godfather. It was fictional, but it was just brilliant. Godfather one and two. But one of my favorite movies of all time that people don't recognize because it wasn't a feature film it was an HBO movie was the Gotti movie that was, I, I think it came out in the 90s, Armand DeSante played Gotti, um, and Anthony Quinn played uh, uh, O'Neill. It was a brilliant movie. It was probably the most realistic movie ever done on that life, and it was so well written, so well acted. Armand DeSante was brilliant. Anthony Quinn was brilliant. I just loved the movie, and of course, you know, I knew John well, and I was, I was involved in... Uh, and some of his case only because we had the same lawyer and I listened to a lot of the tapes and so on and so forth. And that's where they got a lot of information for the movie right off the wiretap. So it was brilliantly done. And I recommend that to everybody. Not, not the latest guy. Oh no, no, Travolta. Oh, no. Forget that. <laughs> this was the one with Armand DeSante, the HBO movie. Sticking on the movie role, best actor that portrays a mobster in movies is who? Joe Pesci, hands down. <laughs> you would think he was in the life, right? He's just terrific. <laughs> he, he really is. I mean, I can name scene after scene after scene. He's just riveting. 
and he's so realistic. You know, to me, when I watch a mob movie, I mean, I'm looking for authenticity. All right. Any any truth to the rumor that you're going to start your own family and break away from the Columbos? Because I, I read it on the Internet, Mike, and you know everything on the Internet is true. So, you know, there was there was absolutely no truth to that whatsoever. It was a fictionalized story. It caused me a lot of headaches when I was on the street because it started to get into people's heads. You know, because I had a big crew and, and my father was coming home and maybe we were going to make a move. Absolutely not true to that whatsoever, Michael. I, it was a fantasy. I don't know where they got it, but <laughs> it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't pleasant, believe me. How about a mobster from a movie that you think resembles you the most or can play you? But, I mean, I get asked that. I don't know. You know, I mean, look, I, I'll give you on the QT. I can't name the production company, but I'm involved in a series, TV series now about my life. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, and that that should be announced, you know, when all this stuff is over with, number one. And then they're also doing a feature 